3: Today on BASIC, Padma Lakshmi, host of Bravo's Top Chef and Taste the Nation.
0: I always loved to cook, but I didn't know it was a profession that I could have. You know, I've always been hanging out in the kitchen with the women in my family. I loved to cook, cooked a lot in college for my roommates, Uh, cooked a lot in high school for my mom. If you had told me even at 25 that I would have career in food, I wouldn't have believed you. I mean... I was a financial aid student, and I never had a lot of money in college, and when I did get a little bit of money, I would splurge on a cookbook.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to BASIC, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, and I can't cook, but I do love to eat.
3: And I'm Jen Chaney, TV critic at Vulture and New York Magazine, and I love to eat, and I sometimes can cook.
1: So, Jen, our guest today is the longtime host of one of Cable's most enduring competition shows, Top Chef.
3: Padma Lakshmi has been the show's host and a judge since season two. That's 18 years. They're in their 18th season right now. She's been nominated for three Emmy Awards and is the author of multiple books. And her Hulu show, Taste the Nation, won a prestigious James Beard Foundation Award.
1: Wow. I'm already feeling seriously inadequate. But Top Chef is truly one of basic Cable's mainstay programs. So let's get right into it. So hands up, utensils down, and Jen and I will be back after it to chop it all up.
3: So we are so excited to welcome Padma Lakshmi to The Basic Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, we always start our, our episodes by asking our guests the same question, which is, do you remember the
0: first time that you saw cable television? I'm sure it was HBO. Yeah, i I probably saw a fight or something in high school, <laughs> like a boxing match. You mean? Yes, yes, that's the <laughs> boxing match. That's that's what I remember. I mean, I don't think my mother didn't, but well, not even in high school because my mother would not get cable until I went to college. She mm. wanted me to study and not have t- too much TV to watch, so I just watched bad TV. Okay.
1: <laughs> So you moved to India, um, from India, when you were very, very young. Um, Mm -hmm. I think only around four years old. Yeah. What were your first impressions of American food when you got here? And do do you even remember, like, noticing a difference at that age?
0: I remember being warned by my grandfather to be really careful of, you know, what I was eating. I was a vegetarian until I was a teenager. I remember being very suspicious of a lot of foods. So I remember hot dog stands. And my mother and I would have hot dogs without the meat, just all the fixins. Uh, it's pretty good. I made Jimmy Fallon eat one last week. Yeah, I saw that. He didn't <laughs> want to take more than one bite, but he did not. It's that bad. It's just not very gratifying because it's just fluff bread, fluffy bread, and condiments. But I think that was the first thing. But I mean, when I first kind of, if you're talking about like basic cable, like modern basic cable, I will. I will say the first thing I probably watched on cable was The Actor's Studio, which is a show that I really loved. Oh, wow. One of the greats. Yeah, Inside the Actor's Studio.
1: Thank you for recognizing exactly what Basic Cable is, because despite the title of the show, I would say more than half our guests who made their career in cable can't tell you the difference between you know, <laughs> HBO and Basic Cable. Right. Thank, thank you. We appreciate that.
3: My pleasure. <laughs> Well, to that point, you know, when you went to college, you studied, I believe, theater arts and and English literature and and
0: American. Yeah.
3: American literature. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you I think your main goal was to be an actor. Right. Is that what you were planning to do for a career?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I did act a little bit um, here and there. I acted in projects in Europe, mostly in Italy. And then I acted in some projects here. And then, you know, the cooking thing kind of just took off. Every now and then I'll get a script from someone, you know, who wants me in something, but it always conflicts with my filming schedule. So Mm -hmm. I haven't really been in anything in about 15 years. Mm. Do you miss it? I do miss it. I mean, it's a different muscle. Um, Some of it's the same, but, you know, I just miss being in a character rather than just being there. Both have Mm -hmm. its pluses and minuses, I would say.
1: Yeah, And acting led to somehow modeling at some point. So you really were spending time in front of cameras pretty much early on. Was that very good preparation for...
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the modeling was first. I started modeling my last semester of college when I was an exchange student in Madrid. And then, you know, I came back to get my degree, uh, or like graduate, basically. And then I just had this degree in American Lit and Theater, which as we know qualifies you to do nothing. <laughs> so I I thought I would be a substitute teacher while I auditioned and stuff, but I got discovered again in Los Angeles by a European modeling scout and he promptly took me to Europe. And so I spent most of my twenties in Europe. And that's why I started acting there.
1: So modeling, acting, and then of course, you know, you've you have ended up as uh, this unbelievable television host in the world of food. So where did where did the food thing come in? Was that a sort of a chicken and egg question? Were you, were you a foodie before all this? Did you become a foodie because of all this?
0: No, I mean, I always loved to cook, but I didn't know it was a profession that I could have. You know, I've always been hanging out in the kitchen with the women in my family. I love to cook, uh, cooked a lot in college for my roommates, uh, cooked a lot in high school for my mom. And I think it was after my first movie, I had to gain 20 pounds for it. And I, you know, wasn't paid too much. I was still making most of my living as a model. And so I wanted to lose the weight, but in a healthy way. And so I just took the normal repertoire of recipes I had and took the fat out of them. You know, in those days, we believed fat was bad. So um, <laughs> so, so I did that. And then a cookbook came out of that. I always loved cookbooks as well. You know, I'll often buy a cookbook. And read it cover to cover and then i don't really follow the recipes but i'll get ideas and sort of wing it i mean i pretty much know and i can also correct the recipes as i go but you know it's it's interesting because even in co- if i look back on my life now it's really no wonder i'm in food but if you had told me even at 25 that i would have a career in food i wouldn't have believed you i mean i was a financial aid student and i never had a lot of money in college and When I did get a little bit of money, I would splurge on a cookbook. And then I remember I had Craig Claiborne's uh, New York Times international cookbook that was broken up by countries. And then, you know, our Friday or Saturday night activity in my college apartment would be to pick a country and pool our money and buy the groceries and and cook, you know, just experiment cooking out of of those recipes of, of whatever country we chose.
3: Did you have a favorite cookbook? Was that the one that you just mentioned? Was that it or were there others?
0: I liked that one years before my mom had sent me to college with the, the Los Angeles Times California cookbook. You know, it's a uh-huh. soft cover cookbook with no pictures. And now if you read some of those recipes, they're kind of funny. But you know, those are the books that I I remember when I was really small. Now I'm talking about like nine years old, there was a cookbook that my mom had called the brand name cookbook, which was sort of using things like sun-made raisins and Toll House, you know, uh, chocolate chips or Skippy peanut butter, whatever, Jif, I don't know. And just making different recipes with a lot of packaged foods. You know, I grew (laughs) up in New York as a latchkey kid, you know, in the seventies and eighties. And my mom worked full-time as a nurse. And so I always tried to pitch in. And I think that's where my, probably my love of cooking started. Mm
1: -hmm. Also, also New York City, the home of some of the greatest restaurants, right? In the world and and, uh, some of the greatest chefs. Was was food and cooking like a big part of your family's culture and vibe? Was like, like a big deal, you know, in your house?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I grew up between New York and South India. And my mother would send me back to India to live with my grandparents three months out of every year during the summer holidays. And, you know, in my grandmother's house, at any given time, there were eight or 10 of us living in a two-bedroom apartment. And she only had two burners, and she was always cooking. And my grandmother didn't really get a fridge until she was in her 30s. And she kind of didn't know what to do with it. She would store, you know, ice in the freezer and a lot of jugs of water so they'd be cold. So there was always cooking going on and there was always chopping going on because, you know, feeding 10 people three times a day is a lot. So from very early, I would say from, you know, two, three, four, even before I ever came to America, I was hanging out with all the women in my family, my aunts, my grandmother, who did nothing but cook all day.
3: Mm. Wow. I mean, that does make it part of the norm as opposed to, you know, I know for me, like I still cannot figure out how to like organized myself in terms of cooking meals like I'm always like oh I have to cook dinner what am I going to do mm-hmm. whereas if people are always cooking around you it just doesn't it probably doesn't seem as daunting i would imagine
0: yeah i think it just seemed like the order of business you know it just was what we did on a daily basis i you know there were sounds that even told you what time of the day it was like the pressure cooker whistle going off you know the the frying of curry leaves and mustard seeds in a very hot iron wok you know, I I could tell what step my grandmother was in by the noises and smells coming out of the kitchen. I didn't even have to be there. And I think nobody told me those things. I think I just learned by watching.
3: So to to kind of fast forward to Top Chef, like you, I believe they invited you to be on the show for the first season, but you had a conflict that maybe it was a movie you were working on or something. And so you couldn't do it. What what was that conversation?
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, i had, I had talked to them about the show while it was in development and it sounded like a cool idea, but you know, they were getting their ducks in a row and I got this movie and I, as I said, I was still acting. So I went to do the movie and, you know, in a way it was good because I got to see what the show was like before signing on second season and, and I liked it. I thought it was a nice show. I mean, I don't really watch reality television, even to this day. I can't watch it. That was our <laughs> show because I know what happens, obviously, mm-hmm. but also any show. Like, I don't watch any reality television, except for maybe RuPaul's Drag Race or Lizzo's show. But I watch those with my daughter, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Do you watch other cooking shows ever? No. No? Okay. (laughs) No, because, uh, I mean, I used to love watching Julia Child when I was little, because that's all we had. We had PBS. Uh, Mm -hmm. Above, my mom wouldn't spring for the cable, Or I would watch Graham Kerr you know um, galloping gourmet yes exactly and so i would watch them but the modern day shows and i used to watch the food network before i was on it Mm -hmm. i was actually on the food network before i got to top chef but now i i just don't like it i mean it just doesn't appeal to me (laughs) i'm sorry because you're in it all the time probably (laughs) i know how the sausage is made
3: Go to PantheonPodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
1: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
3: And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship
0: outside the U.S.
1: So backing up to that Food Network show, is is that how you sort of came to the attention of the Top Chef folks? Is that how you sort of got established in the in the food TV world?
0: I mean, I pitched Lauren Zelaznick, who was the head of Bravo at the time, another show, which was a dinner party show. But that was more about conversation and the guests than a demonstrative cooking show. Or it was certainly wasn't a competition cooking show. So she passed on that show, but she... said, we are developing this other show. Would you like to be a part of that? You know? And I said, yes. And that's how we started talking about Top Chef. But again, you know, first season, I was already, my calendar was booked. So they did the show with another host. And then I came on second season.
1: Mm-hmm. lauren zelaznick is uh the uh ex programmer at bravo
0: she's the head of bravo
1: yeah and she uh, ex-colleague of mine and we she was we talked about her when we spoke to tim gunn because she was also instrumental in in starting his show as well sure so, one, one of the really great um tv execs in that space for sure
3: so when you started on on top chef did it take a little while for you to kind of get into your groove as a as a host because it's it, It's not as easy as it probably looks to people to find the right tone and, you know, the right balance in terms of being, because you're also a judge. So you kind of have two hats that you're wearing.
0: I don't think it took me a while to get my groove. I think, you know, whenever a new person comes on to host the show, that changes the dynamic. And I think, you know, everybody was getting used to everyone. But I mean, yes, it's, it's, it's harder than it looks. But really, you just have to have a lot of stamina. And have high thresholds for pain. That's about <laughs> what it requires. That's, that's really about what it requires, you know? Why do you say high threshold for pain? Long hours, lots of food.
1: I find the judging part, you know, you have those people, those personalities that go way over the top and are known for being you know, rough and mean and very blunt. And that's one way to go. And then I find, I think it's really hard though, if you're not going to do that, you know, which seems the easy way out on a a certain level to come on television and talk to these folks and be sort of constructive and critical and and smart about it at the same time. You know, like Jen said, it's much harder than it looks, although we've never done it, but I think I know that from where I sit
0: well I mean here's the thing I become very attached to these contestants and they're the real stars of our show I'm with them every minute of the day I mean not every minute of the day but I'm certainly with them whenever there's a camera running you know and I really feel for them I would say Top Chef is much harder to do in real life than it than it seems on TV for the contestants Mm -hmm. and it is much harder to do for me as well I mean I It takes a very big physical toll on me and takes me, you know, weeks and weeks to bounce back. And, uh, you know, I've, I've struggled with that a lot. Mm. The hours are brutal.
1: And you're on the, you're on the road, right?
0: Yeah, we're on the road. I mean, we go to one city and we sort of stay there for six weeks. I mean, there have been seasons like Texas and California where we've moved around. And that is really brutal because you wind up packing and moving every, you know, five days or a week or whatever when uh, otherwise when we go to a city we just park it there for six weeks and then we usually go somewhere else for the finale in the early days we let some space go between the regular season and the finale and I think that's good for the contestants I think lately it's just been easier for our producers just to plow through and go directly to finale the last few seasons it's just a lot of food and long hours and for me it's you know, wearing high heels on concrete all day, and so you know i don't I don't recommend it to many people. like i don't, I think the only reason I can do it is because I'm doing it for a finite period of time. and I'm really
1: you won't do it forever
0: i I'm really fond of all our contestants because I can see what they go through. and I try to be very constructive in my criticism. I try, you know, after a while, you get to know their food, and so I try to tell them. How I think it would be better, or you know what was the good thing that they did, like or remember what you did last week? why didn't you do that here? Um, and there are contestants who are really adept at absorbing that information, processing it, and immediately factoring it in to their next challenge, and that's a joy to watch. You know Carla Hall is someone who comes to mind.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Adrian Cheatham is another one who comes to mind. I mean we really, to be honest, I love Adrian, but I didn't think she would get as far as she did. Mm-hmm. And she just really came into her own, and and that's so fun to watch. And I'm always rooting for them, and it's so beautiful for me standing in the kitchen to see their growth like that mm-hmm. and get very emotionally attached.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so do the viewers, <laughs> as you know. Um, I want to go back and ask a food-related question because, you know, as an actor, as you well know, you can always, like, push your food around on a plate when you're shooting a scene and not eat too much, but you have to try everything. And even if it's just an amuse-bouche, you're eating like 15 of them. It's Is there a trick to like getting through that and giving everybody like, because I would think that whatever you eat last, you're going to be like, oh, I'm so sick of eating. I don't like this very much.
0: But how do you get past that? You have to separate, you know, your hunger from your taste buds. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of it is also cooking technique and texture and all of that. I try and take small bites. It's hard. You know, people have theories about, you know, oh, she takes another bite. She really likes it. Or she takes three bites. She doesn't like it. You know, but Mm -hmm. I don't really, I don't have that. I'm just tasting for as much as I need to figure out the high points and low points of that dish. And I try not to eat a lot, but, you know, I'm human and it's hard. And (laughs) So that last is, but what we try and do is mix the order around as much as possible so that everyone gets to be first and everyone gets to be in the middle and last as well. Sure.
3: Sure. Do you feel like your
0: palate has become more refined from doing this? I think my tastes have gotten even simpler. I think oh, okay. tasting all of this food um, has made me realize that, you know, at least in this point of my life, I'm not as interested in a certain kind of very high-end dining it seems you know kind of cerebral and a lot of it is beautiful and painstakingly made and super creative I mean I you know I really admire the chefs who do it but Mm -hmm. if I'm on my own time I probably just would rather go you know to a mom-and-pop restaurant and discover some you know ethnic food that's a hole in the wall whether you know it's Asian or Latin or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's where my head is at. That's where my interests lie. Maybe because I'm not a chef, I'm a food writer, you know? Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: so my ethos is always, how do I teach somebody about food when I'm not standing in the room and can show them by cooking with them? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, how can I convey what the experience of eating this food is like. And that's also what I'm doing as a judge because, you know, unlike other reality shows, you guys at home can't taste what I'm tasting. You have to take our word for it basically, right? So I think it's incredible to me that even though you can't taste the food on our show, whereas on The Voice, you can hear the singing or on Project Runway, you can see the clothes, that, you know, we're able to convey how it feels and tastes to eat a given plate of food. And mm. I try to be as descriptive as I can, but sometimes, honestly, it's just like, this is amazing. It's delicious. You know, <laughs> there's only so many adjectives there are, <laughs> but I feel like that's my job anyway as a writer. So I'm just doing it mm-hmm. verbally versus writing it.
1: Sure. That's very true. I will, there's a, there's a food show host who will, I will not name who needs more adjectives. <laughs> but,
3: uh, <laughs> To go back to something you were saying earlier, Padma, about, um, you know, the simplicity that you appreciate in in eating, one of the things I really like about Top Chef is that even though, you know, a lot of the chefs are using ingredients that maybe the average person might not be familiar with, there is also an attempt to use very familiar things, like the episode that I was watching that was from, my guests last week, where they had to do the amuse-bouche on the Ritz crackers, which, you know... For me, very fancy food as a child was on Thanksgiving when my mom would put cheese Whiz on a Ritz cracker, which we only got once a year. Like that was very fancy. And I think there was a a quick fire challenge at one point where they had to use stuff from like a vending machine. So there is this kind of low high Mm -hmm. on the show that I think makes it more accessible for people. Is that something that you guys are always thinking about?
0: I think we're thinking about, first and foremost, what's going to be a fun challenge, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of chefs, especially, you know, if they're at a certain level, rightfully kind of poo-poo packaged goods right and i think the vending machine challenge was just to test their limits and say how do you create something out of something else because you're not always going to get access to the best ingredients or you know produce or protein or whatever Mm -hmm. with the ritz cracker challenge I think you can do a lot with a cracker, whether it's a Ritz or anything else. I'm sure that, you know, that was also a paid integration. Plan. Yeah, <laughs> for sure.
1: <laughs> Which you do, I'm sure your mom was not paid to serve the Ritz crackers back at Thanksgiving. That year. No, I wish she had been. I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty certain. <laughs> so a, uh, a recent New York Times piece on the show uh, called it one of the most influential forces shaping the way Americans think about restaurants and chefs. And it also credited the uh, top chef with changing the way Americans eat. So do you, do you agree with all that? And and why do you think the show has had such an impact and for so long?
0: I think it's it just caught a wave because, you know, you don't have to be a food professional to have very fully formed opinions about food. You know, every creature that's living eats daily, mostly, unless you're a snake. I guess you eat once a week. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so we all are very interested in food, whether we're, you know, gastronomes or not. And so some people do, I guess, just eat to survive and shove whatever's in front of them in their face, but that's not most people. And so I think that's why it caught a wave. I mean, when I was young, even when I was in college, I didn't know what an Mm -hmm. amuse-bouche was. I didn't know what that, I didn't know what an amuse-bouche was, but, you know, I will stand on the corner and try to get a taxi and, and, teenagers or tweens come up to me and they'll say, you know, like, oh, we had a sleepover party at my house. And at our slumber party, we had an amuse Bush contest or we had our own quick fire. And so I think it's also one of the few things that you can watch with every member of your family. I know a lot of families will watch it together. And after the kids leave for college, they'll still call their parents and watch it. Mm hmm. And so, you know, I think I think that's part of the appeal. I think over the years, because you hear us being so analyzing about every bite we take, you know, just deconstructing it. And again, we're doing that because you can't taste it at home. It's slowly worked its way into how people think about food. And then they wind up doing it because they hear it every week or, you know, however you watch it, if you binge it, you know, they hear us doing it. And so I think just by listening to us over so many seasons, they do it too, you know?
3: Right, right. But I also think the context in which you present the information is, it does, for lack of a better word, it doesn't feel like food snobbish, so that I could be like, oh yeah, maybe I'll try to do something like this. I mean, have you ever gotten an idea for a recipe from one of the chefs on the show?
0: Not really. I mean, because that kind of restaurant food is just different than my food.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, my my food is home cooking, it, you know, whether that's Thai or Indian or Mexican or Moroccan. Mm-hmm. This, this is a different, you know, this is a professional chef's show. What that means is not only do you have to be good at making a delicious dish, you have to be good at making 100 delicious dishes all at the same time that look and taste the same and that are all hot right. Mm -hmm. Often with yourself, it's a different skill. You know, I think, I think one time they made scallops with kumquats and I thought, oh, you know, that would be nice to do some kind of citrus glaze on scallops.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I mean. Not replicating the recipes, but just getting ideas from, from them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that happens to me when I go to eat at a girlfriend's house or, you Mm -hmm. know, go to get, some shawarma at the halal truck. I'm always absorbing information. Um, Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things to do in any city is go to their markets at first to see what they're eating, you know, whether Mm -hmm. it's Marrakesh or Seattle.
1: Well, before we get to um, Taste the Nation, just tell us a little bit about what we can expect uh, in the upcoming season 20 right as Jen just said
3: yeah it's already underway
1: Are we oh, so and so and this is the all stars
0: yes it's international all stars so in order to compete this season in london you'd have had to at least win another season of top chef from somewhere around the world or at least make it to the fina- you know finale so it's only finalists or winners and again, they're from all over the world, from Brazil, from Mexico, from Jordan, from Thailand, from Italy, from the Congo.
1: And these are all people you've worked with before?
0: No, they're not. I mean, I have oh. worked with my crew. No, because, you know, Top Chef, I my version of, of Top Chef is in 174 territories. So I'm dubbed in a bunch of languages. But there are also 29 franchise versions. Localized localized yeah. exactly so the french top chef for example is two hours long
2: ah got it
0: you know so we decided to take winners and finalists from all of the top chef franchises i mean we couldn't do all of them because we only right. have so many spots but we did from 11 different countries mm-hmm. so i had other than the american contestants i really hadn't ever met these guys
1: were there now you speak you speak a lot of languages right you speak three or four languages
0: Yes, yes, I do. I, I speak Spanish and Italian and Tamil and Hindi and English.
1: So right. Far. So were there, were there any language barriers in uh, in hosting and, and going back and forth with your contestants?
0: Not really, because there was an Italian contestant um, who's actually from the Congo originally, but she lives and works in Italy. And so I, sp- you know, I don't speak Congolese, but I do speak Italian. And so there were times when I did translate just to make sure she understood. Because you know, you want to make sure it's an even playing field. You want to make sure. sure everyone has heard and understood the parameters of the challenge. But it wasn't mm-hmm. too bad. I mean, I think, you know, kind of a prerequisite was like you have to speak at least functional English. Like right. mm-hmm. the show is in English.
3: To to shift gears and talk about Taste the Nation, which is a wonderful show. And it it to go back to COVID for a second, it happened to debut when a lot of us were in lockdown, which I think, I mean, you can tell me, but as a viewer, it felt like a benefit because no one could go anywhere. And it was just like a way to kind of experience other towns and cities and foods without leaving my living room because I wasn't allowed.
0: <laughs> um Yes, yeah, so it debuted during COVID and that certainly helped us, especially as mm-hmm. a new show. Um, But I had filmed it before COVID. Right, right, right. No, and I figured. Thank God, because, you know, <laughs> unlike Top Chef, I'm in a different place every day. You know, I'm in someone's home in the back of someone's truck in some restaurant kitchen, some hole in the wall, you know, in a par- on a park bench. Like, uh, you know, it's really hard to do that show without having a level of intimacy. I mean, that show depends mm-hmm. completely on personal intimacy. So- I was happy that we were able to finish it before COVID ever started or anyone had heard of COVID. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we did delay the release. It was supposed to come out, I think, in March or April. And they just felt, you know, there's so much going on in the world. Let's wait. And then I think they were like, after a couple of months, they realized that this was going to be a very long Mm -hmm. period of time in the world where things were not going to be right. And, you know, so they, they premiered it on June 18th. Mm -hmm. so we were very into covid and i think people love that show because it also like you know what was going on in the world everybody was feeling so low and Mm -hmm. you had all of this vitriol all of this negativity coming out of washington especially about immigrants and that Mm -hmm. was really why i created the show it was my answer to to people who say that immigrants are not a benefit to this country and I really believe they are. I mean, I love doing Taste the Nation because it allows me to discover communities in the country that, you know, most people don't know about who don't live in the community. But also for me, you know, I, I learned so much doing research. And now we are about to premiere our full second season of the show, another 10 episodes, and that'll be out on Hulu on May 5th. And
1: mm-hmm. where, where where are some of the places you, uh, you're going to take viewers uh, in season two?
0: We go to visit Afghan immigrants in D.C. and we interview four generations of Afghan immigrants. And it's so fascinating how much of that country's destiny is tied to U.S. politics. And we Mm -hmm. show that uh, going back all the way to Nixon. And the same thing, you know, for Cambodia. I mean, you know, we secretly bombed Cambodia during the Vietnam War and Kissinger and Nixon and I are responsible for that too. The reason I wanted to do Cambodians and we went to Lowell, Massachusetts to do them is because people don't really know a lot about Cambodians. And also it's my answer to when people say we shouldn't allow refugees to come in. We shouldn't allow asylum seekers because they're just a drain on our economy. Lowell, Massachusetts in the 80s and 90s was a real crack in meth hub. And it had a lot of gang problems as well. And businesses just left and there were, you know, even on the main streets, there were boarded up storefronts and nobody wanted to live there. So the rents were so cheap that, you know, Cambodians came here who didn't have, in many cases, anything but the clothes on their back. They couldn't speak English. They didn't have, you know, professional skill, like a specialized skill or, you know, or a college degree or anything like that they moved in and they managed to revitalize the whole economy oh. and so much so that one out of every four Lowellians is Cambodian and they've completely mm. rejuvenated the small new England town that we think of as so, you know, waspy and everything, but you know, they, they brought the energy back. They even cleaned up the river because it's a river culture wow. and they love to fish and they wanted to be able to fish. and And so that, that's a way for me to show rather than tell. It's a great story. Yeah. What my opinion is.
3: So when you're deciding where to go for, for Taste the Nation, do you start with, for example, I want to tell stories about Cambodian refugees. What's a good place for that? Or do you start with, we want to go to Massachusetts. Is there a story of that nature in that state? Like how do you decide where to go and what to cover? It
0: can be both. We try to think about, all 10 communities that we're interested in and so we try to have a balance not only geographically of covering the country but also you know do we have too many asian communities and not enough latin communities do we have you know so there are a lot of things i kind of wanted to have always an indigenous story because we also tend to just brush indigenous people with one brush whereas Mm -hmm. they're just completely different communities and they all have their own practice and beliefs and, and and systems of doing things and, and diets, you know, it depends. Mm-hmm. Also, your diet is going to depend on where you live and what the terrain is like there. So for me, I really wanted to tell those stories because really Native Americans and Indigenous people are the only ones who have the right to call themselves just right. Americans. Everybody mm-hmm. else, even if your forefathers and mothers came over on the Mayflower's, you know, on the Mayflower ship, you are also something. You are Euro American. You are Afro American. But, you know, so I always try and say Euro American. I don't say white people anymore.
3: <laughs> In terms of the longevity of both of these shows, actually, like it feels technically, it feels like both Top Chef and Taste the Nation could go on indefinitely if they wanted to. What are your thoughts on on both those things? Uh, Taste the Nation obviously still much younger, so. Uh... <laughs> yes,
0: yes. Well, I mean, I have a lot more control over Taste the Nation. It's you know, it's my baby. Um, I write it, I produce it with my producing partner. I host it. You know, I have a lot of producers who yeah. do a great job and and really help me. With Top Chef, I think it's just at the discretion of the network, you know, and and how long we really want to keep going. I mean. People seem to like it. So it's hard to tell. You, you know, television can be a really fickle business. You know, my, my business is also contracting. So mm-hmm. cable is not getting the numbers that it used to because everybody's watching streaming. And that is a fact of life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are budgetary concerns. Uh, you know, Top Chef is a very expensive business show to make that's why we have a lot of product placement it helps us you know make be able to make the show Mm
2: -hmm.
0: so i mean i would really love to keep doing taste the nation because i do feel it's just in its infancy but Mm -hmm. if we get you know knock on wood i hope if we get another season past the one that uh premieres now in may i would like to go international if they'll let me that was my next question Yeah. And look at migration patterns. You know, they say that the best Turkish food is in Berlin. The best Indian food is not in London, but that's what they say, you know, Um, but it's pretty good. It's really good. Um, So, you know, like going and seeing, I mean, listen, we are in an age in our civilization where there's more migration than at any other time in our existence. And I I find that interesting. I think it's always Mm -hmm. interesting when different cultures mash up against each other and you know we try to bring that a little bit into top chef too and make sure that we're canvassing what any city has to offer in all of its nooks and crannies
3: well i mean i think to the point you made earlier you're doing such a service by doing that because if, if anybody is is quote-unquote afraid of other cultures your show shows that that's ridiculous and 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 that it's something to be celebrated and something to get excited about and how much you can learn from other cultures
0: yeah, I mean, Taste the Nation is not designed for people who think like me. It's actually designed for people in red states. Mm-hmm. I was working with the ACLU for you know six or seven years, and I was looking for something uh, to do artistically that would incorporate some of my advocacy in the immigration space. And you know, just wanted. I've been doing Top Chef for seventeen years. I just also wanted some stimulation and you know to spread my wings a little bit and mm-hmm. so i really created the show to to say to people who maybe are afraid of immigrants or you know have a little bit of xenophobia in them just to say hey you know yes they may have an accent and their name may be hard to pronounce but you know they're just like you like they right. you know they want the same mm-hmm. things for their kids and their families that you do and you know Let's get to know our neighbors. That's how the mm-hmm.
1: show came about. Right. Yeah. So, Podmar, final question we ask everybody. Now, you may have answered this already when you when you uh, when you referenced uh, Inside the Actors' Studios. I don't know if that's your favorite cable show of all time, but the question is, what is your favorite basic cable show of all time, not including your own? Mad Men. Mad Men.
3: Oh, that's a good answer. That's a
0: great answer.
1: That is a great answer. It
0: might even be the right answer.
1: Yeah, (laughs) we have John Slattery coming up on the podcast, so we're excited. Uh,
0: Oh, well, tell him I'm a huge fan of his.
1: (laughs) We are, too. Padma, we were so excited to have you. I will tell you, honestly, you have been on our wish list since uh, we uh, landed on this idea of doing this uh, podcast. Um, You were on the road quite a bit, so it took us a while to catch up with you. But we are so glad you made time for us. So thank you very much for being here.
0: Oh, I'm glad we were able to do it. Thank you so much.
1: And everybody, uh, check out Taste the Nation. uh, And, of course, uh, Top Chef. Thanks for being here.
0: Thank you all. Thanks, Padma. Bye.
3: So I really enjoyed that conversation with Padma Lakshmi, Doug. And one of the things that I really enjoyed that she touched on a little bit is just the way that a show like Top Chef or really any kind of food oriented show can be a way that you learn about all kinds of other things. It can provide comfort. Like I I said about Taste the Nation, like watching that during COVID was a way, I mean, any show was an escape, but it was literally an escape because I got to go to other cities. I was learning things about culture that i didn't know and it just i don't know there's something really special about those kinds of shows i think for that experience
1: yeah no i mean what's interesting to me and certainly thinking about it harder than i ever did in you know both researching this interview and, and then listening to her speak is you know telling stories through food which is universal even more so than say music right because mm-hmm. not everybody really likes music. Almost everybody does, but everybody yeah. has to eat. I mean, food is the might be the most universal thing, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, her ability, certainly through Taste the Nation, and to a certain degree, you know, through Top Chef, to tell stories is is really uh, I think remarkable and and really interesting. And um, it's something that you know, and she talked about watching people like Graham Kerr and Juliet Child. That that wasn't people's relationship with food back then. It's very different now.
3: Right, right. And that's partly because of Top Chef and then also the proliferation of shows like it because of how successful it was. But I also appreciate what she said about, you know, families watching together. I have not yet persuaded my son to watch Top Chef, but he watches the opposite of Top Chef, which is Nailed It, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which we all used to watch together. I don't know if you've ever watched Nailed It.
2: What's
1: what's Nailed It?
3: It's on um, Netflix and it's a show where... No one knows how to cook. Like, they think they can bake, but they don't really. And they get these, they're like, okay, make cupcakes that look like this. And then they reveal it. And it's like a melted, weird-looking thing that doesn't look anything like the picture. And it's funny. Um, Nicole Byers is uh, the host of it. So it's a lot of little kids like it because it is that funny thing of seeing this ludicrous-looking Right. Cake that doesn't look the way it's supposed to. But it's also kind of fun because the the people, you know, they are like home bakers. They're people that are kind of like trying to do things just for their family. And so it's just like a fun much less pressurized situation than what you see on Top Chef. But I just like that whole kind of spectrum to have something like that. And then something like Top Chef, where these people clearly very much know what they're doing.
1: Well, it's, 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 it's incredible. You know, I mean, I look at my own family, you know, my daughter would watch cooking shows with my wife, but even my sons, like going back to high school, when they were in high school, they got into Guy Fieri and that goofy stuff. But, you know, that went on to give them an interest. They they love food. They're real, they're into food. You know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say they're foodies, but you know, they, they, They research restaurants and seek out food trucks and want to eat exotic things, and they watch a bunch of different people, both on TV and online and on social media, and everybody's into food. You know, we're (laughs) so much more sophisticated about it now. I, I of course, still can't boil water, but I certainly know a lot more about cooking and food and cuisines and international cuisines than I ever did. I mean, when I think about when I was my kid's age, I, I, you know, I didn't ever eat in a exotic restaurant Mexican restaurants were just coming into fashion and that's how old I am you know I don't think I was ordering bottles of wine <laughs> until I was in my 40s it's just different now
3: yeah yeah and it is like you were saying food is such a conduit for other things like this is not cable this is not even streaming it's a technically a web series but have you ever watched hot ones because I love hot ones oh
2: yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: and that, that's I mean it is about the chicken wings and the spiciness but it's also like just a way to Kind of bring somebody into a conversation. And I think the interviews on that show are actually pretty great.
1: Yeah. And it's also entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's super funny. You know, my son showed that one to me. Yeah, yeah I've totally, totally seen that. That's great.
3: If you haven't seen the Pedro Pascal one. That's the one to see. After you finish recording, go watch it.
1: Well, I was gonna say, um, I will watch that, but this whole thing made me really hungry, Jen. So, uh, <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna sign off now. We hope you'll be back next week. I'm gonna go, I don't know about you, Jim, but I'm gonna get something to eat and I'll see you next week.
3: All right. BASIC is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM.
1: Hosted by Jen Chaney and
3: Doug Herzog.
1: Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli.
3: Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer.
1: Sound design and music by Jerry Danielson.
3: Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher.
1: Recorded and edited by Zach Spisner.
3: You can find BASIC on Apple Podcasts, the Sirius XM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us.
1: Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL
4: Draft Season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.